Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done. I wish parents knew that how their kids eat is so much more important than what their kids eat. Of course, we care about nutrition and, and all the things. We want them to have variety. But when we focus on the, the what too much, we kind of interrupt the how. And that's where that anxiety or pressure or fear or bribing or negotiating comes in. And mealtime's like, wait, isn't this supposed to be fun? And so really just reminding yourself that how you eat as a family is so much more important than what you're eating. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 203. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. This episode is fantastic. I talk with Una Hansen, who is an expert in parenting without diet culture. So she has so many pearls of wisdom, so many great tips to share with us and with you today. So it's really fantastic. I want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. If you have concerns about you or your child's eating nutrition or growth, please consult a doctor. So let me tell you about Una. 
I found her on Instagram and I'm so glad I did. So in education for 25 years, Una Hansen helps parents and guardians raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food and their body. In addition to her private practice as a parent coach, Una also works as a family mentor at Equip, an eating disorder treatment program. Una holds a master's degree in educational psychology and a master's degree in English. Her work has been featured widely, including on CNN, USA Today, Good Morning America, Parents, U.S. News and World Report, Today, People, Pop Sugar, Grown and Flown, and Your Teen. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. And in this episode, we're talking about diet culture. We're talking about how diet culture can harm us and our children. We're talking about raising children without diet culture and what are some of the biggest barriers to that. We talk about eating disorders, how we can decrease the risk of eating disorders presenting themselves in our children and also some myths, some really common common myths <laughs> about eating disorders and what they look like and why when we have these myths, we can miss sometimes when our children are exhibiting or they have an eating disorder, we may miss it. And we also talk about some of those early signs of eating disorders. What are those little things that you can just be aware of and be looking for um, that your child may do or say that can clue you in that they are beginning to develop an eating disorder? I also hear Una's perspective on veganism and vegetarianism and how to approach that in our children. And so we have a really good discussion around that as well. It's just a really great episode. I think you're going to love it. Excellent resources, excellent tips. So definitely if you're concerned about diet culture, if you're concerned about eating disorders, have a history of disordered eating yourself, have struggle with body image, this is definitely an episode to listen to. Thank you so much for being here today, veggie lovers. I appreciate you so much and I am so grateful for you. So without further ado, let's welcome Una Hansen. Una Hansen, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for being with us today. So happy to be here. Well, I found you on Instagram, which is one of my favorite places to find experts that can come and teach us lots of stuff. I love your message. I love what you do because I actually haven't seen that many professionals doing the exact work that you're doing. And I think it's so, so important. But I also love your messaging and the way that you educate and bring a positive positive nature to it, but also the truth, right? It's so important to educate in that way. But before we get into some of these topics, I would love to know how you got into this work and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, well, I started out my career as a high school English teacher, and I loved working with teenagers. And I really quickly realized that their parents needed a lot of support too. And when you help parents, that helps kids. So when I had my own kids, I realized even more that when you have little ones, there's mommy and me, parent and me, there's all these classes and support groups, but really not very much for parents of adolescents. So I started supporting more and more parents of teens and tweens. And then I had a child develop an eating disorder and learned so much the hard way. Um, just threw myself into research, just read everything I could get my hands on. And realized there was so there was just a great need for support for parents whose kids had either body image issues or eating disorders. So more and more of my work became focused on supporting that particular group of parents who had 
um, either a concern that it could be an eating disorder or they wanted to try to prevent an eating disorder or they were already in the thick of treatment and really needed some support. What a journey. And I know that it can be so painful when our children go through anything like that. But eating disorders especially can be so painful because there's so many things you may start questioning. What did I say? What did I do? How did this happen? Is this my fault? And I know that parents go through this a lot. So thank you for turning that pain and that struggle into a passion that you help other people so that they can navigate that journey. Because I imagine that sometimes it can be really hard for you to kind of re-experience some of these feelings over and over again. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is that kind of turning your pain into purpose that, you know, fuels every day what I do with families. It is the hardest thing I've ever been through as a parent. Um, and I think most families feel that way when they've gone through an eating disorder in large part because of what you said, that people blame themselves. The culture might kind of give you that sense of what did you do wrong that your child developed this mental illness. Um, so really parents do need so much support. And it's just my honor to be a, a, you know, a piece of their support team to guide them through this process. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing that. Well, let's start defining some terms and, and setting the foundation here. How do you define diet culture? It's a big topic. You know, I think part of what's hard about diet culture is that it's so normalized, right? So this reminds me of your recent episode about you know weight stigma and the way that we're just kind of trained to see certain things as just the norm or the natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and diet culture is that way too. It's the water we're swimming in. You know, it's the belief that there are certain kinds of bodies that are better than others and that food is also in a hierarchy. Of course, that those rules and that hierarchy, it changes all the time, right? When I was a kid, everything was um, fat-free, right? Right now, everything is sugar-free. So kind of the rules of diet culture kind of change and morph over time. But the general idea that that food and people get put into a hierarchy to me is the core of diet culture. And of course, underneath it all is anti-fat bias and fat phobia that just runs through every part of our culture right now. And it's really hard to start to see kind of beyond that. And so I'm so glad that people like you are talking about, you know, just taking a different perspective on some of these things. Yeah. And I think it takes deliberate effort to untangle our minds from it. And sometimes it's still confusing, even for some of us that are doing this work. Like you really have to sit down and think about it. Like, okay, let's think through this. Where did this originate from? Is this related to diet culture? Is it really more in support of health and well-being? I mean, it it can get really muddy really fast, especially for me. And if you've heard that episode, you know, I struggled with disordered eating. So I feel like I had so many years where I was so immersed in that bias that sometimes it's easy for me to kind of start slipping back into it a little bit. So I think being aware of our own histories and where we've been is really, really important because that's where our brains have been. That's the habits, the thought habits that we have. Give us a few ways in which diet culture can start to harm us as adults, as parents, but also our children. At its core, diet culture separates us from ourselves, right? And from our family and from our sense of connection and belonging, right? If we don't feel like our body is okay, it's really hard to go about your day and really experience life. And as a family, if, if let's say cultural foods or family traditions get interrupted by diet culture rules, like you're trying to healthify grandma's recipe at a holiday or something like that, there are those ways that diet culture sort of interrupts these connections that are, I mean, really more important than ever. So that's, to me, the 
kind of the more philosophical aspect of the way diet culture can affect families is it really separates us from our intuition, our true self, our authentic connections to each other and to our family history. On a practical level, I think it puts a lot of pressure on parents, right? You talked about health and wellness, and I think parents, of course, we want our kids to be as healthy as they can be, and it can really make it hard for us to plan meals or go grocery shopping without this sort of fear, like, is this okay to give my kid? And that kind of fear and anxiety around food, that really, again, interrupts what mealtime really should be about, right? It's not just the nutrition that you can quantify on a nutrition label, right? We're getting nourishment from our food when we eat together as a family that, you know, you, you can't read that on a food label. Diet culture kind of can interrupt that other kind of nourishment in a way that I think is really harmful. Yes, absolutely. And as a pediatrician, I see that every single day. <laughs> so even just in the way that in our culture, in this society, I know that a lot of westernized countries have started to be infiltrated by this thinking, but parents just starting to think in terms of macronutrients all the time. Like there's a huge obsession with protein. There's a lot of confusion about it too, but it makes parents so anxious that they change their feeding practices because they're so concerned that their children is not eating enough of a certain macronutrient. And so all of these little messages that we've started to tell our society has really started interfering in these feeding practices and how we feel about ourselves and our bodies and whether our kids are healthy or not. And parents spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. But speaking of feeding, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you see parents making when they're feeding their children? You know, I, I, I tend not to frame it as a mistake parents are making and really zoom out and look at the pressure on parents. So parents live in diet culture, as do their children's doctors, as you know, their, their, their own healthcare providers, everything we're reading and taking in so much of it is this pressure, like you said, for parents to feed kids a certain way. I don't really see what parents are doing in general as a mistake. Everyone is doing the best they can with the information they have. And so I really, if there's any blame to be placed, it's on this larger culture and, you know, the sort of diet and weight loss industries and things like that. Um, you know, parents get swept up in this and they're always looking out for their kids' best interests. Maybe there's, you know, some approaches they haven't learned yet. And that's where I come in. <laughs> I love it. I love how balanced you are and how kind. I knew that you just have this positive, you emanate this positivity, which I really love and appreciate. But yeah, I think it's very difficult for me to place blame on any certain entity because I feel like it's a collective consciousness, right? Like we have created this collective consciousness from a variety of sources and this machine just runs on this certain way of thinking. And it takes people deliberately stepping out of that and saying, is this maybe the best way to do things? Can we think about this a little bit differently? And how is this causing problems? How is this causing us suffering and pain and tearing apart families and interfering with our social relationships, which diet culture often does sometimes in very extreme ways, and that we can all learn different methods. And just like I used to feed my kids a certain way and approach food a certain way, I learned different ways that work better for us now and bring more joy and harmony to our dinner table. What would you say is one of the biggest barriers to raise kids as little as possible with the influence of diet culture? Where has it become really hard? I mean, I think the biggest barrier is fat phobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like to me, that's the bottom line. That is, it is, our culture is so 
fat phobic. There's so much weight stigma and parents feel that it is their job to try to control their child's body size. Um, we know that, you know, that just doesn't end well. <laughs> um, and so to me, that's the, that's the, like the elephant in the room is this fear of my child's body size, not being acceptable in society. So I see that yes. that's really what I think affects so much of our, our struggle. And even if the child technically may not be perceived that way, it's the fear that the child is going to get that way, particularly for parents that they themselves have struggled with their own body image, right? So usually the parent has gone through this themselves. They've been on several diets. They're very affected by it. And then they have in their head, and I'm just talking from personal experience because I've been through this, right? So they have in their head, I want to save my child from suffering in this way. And so I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they don't become part of this category, you know, but it just, it makes life so stressful. It makes everything so difficult. And we think we're going to help our child and save them from this suffering, but really we're creating a whole nother set of issues. Right. I mean, part of this is the big diet culture lie that we have total control over our body size, right? And so I think it's helpful sometimes for parents to think about, you know, if your child came home from school and they were teased about their hair or the color of their skin or the shape of their nose or their height, you know, we wouldn't rush out and say, okay, let's change your appearance, right? So that you don't get bullied or teased, right? Instead, we would say, oh, that sounds so hard. Tell me more. Isn't it awful that some people don't know that people come in all shapes and sizes? Um, you know, how can we support you to, you know, feel good in your body the way it is and, and know that the problem isn't in your body? It's in the culture and it's in that child who hasn't been taught, you know, the, the bully or the, the kid who's teasing, that child hasn't learned yet that, you know, people come in this wide range of, you know, diverse sizes and, and shapes and abilities. So I think sometimes if we can reframe concerns about body image or body teasing, let's say in a school, if we think about it as if it were any other physical feature about your child, how you would respond to your child. And I think that can really help parents kind of shift that response um, to really help our kids feel safe in the body they have, their one and only body they'll have for their whole life, and really reassert the fact that they are okay as they are. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you just gave some great scripts, and I think that that's so helpful as parents because we have never practiced talking about it. So one of the first um, instincts that parents have if a a child comes and like, mom, I'm fat. And like, oh, no, 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 you're beautiful. You're perfect. You're fine. Don't worry about it, which is a very typical response. What would be a more helpful way to address a child either being concerned about their own weight and body size, or if they're curious, like this happens a lot in little kids too. Like they're just curious. It's like, mommy, you know, that person is fat or that's a big person or whatever. What are some scripts that we can use to help us navigate some of those conversations? Yeah, I think, first of all, it is so natural for parents to want to rush in and reassure, especially because fat has this, you know, unfortunately, it's been used as a, you know, as a put down and has a negative connotation for a lot of people, especially if that word was used as a weapon against you when you were a kid, or maybe currently as an adult. So to realize that that word itself doesn't have to um, have so much power over us. <laughs> So kind of taking stock or realizing like, oh, when I hear that my child say the word fat, I have a big reaction in my body. 
Um, so kind of just noticing that. I think the most important thing when a child says, am I fat, or they call themselves fat, regardless of their body size, um, is that we want to listen, right? And say, oh, tell me more. Or why do you ask that? Or where does that, where's that coming from? Again, with, with calm and compassion, not like, who called you that? I'm going to get on the phone and call their parent right now. Um, but kind of like, oh, where is that coming from? Or why do you ask that? Or that's an interesting question. It also is kind of buying you time as a parent to kind of take some deep breaths because it might be bringing up a lot for you, right? Especially, as you said, if this is something that happened to you as a child. So I think it's really about listening and letting them know that if they feel discomfort in their body, that, you know, we can validate their distress and say, you know, like, it makes sense if someone teases you, right, that you feel bad, or it makes sense if all your friends, you know, are trying to look like a certain celebrity or a TikToker or something, and you feel like you don't kind of match that ideal, it makes sense to wonder if your body's okay. And really let them know that you're a safe person to come to with body image concerns. Because I think what can often happen when we rush in and say, no, honey, you're beautiful, we've kind of let them know, like, we're not comfortable having this conversation. Uh, we've also put fatness and beauty, uh, you know, as if they're opposites, which is not true. Um, and we're also doubling down on the idea that appearance is the most important thing, right? That beauty or, you know, is, is this thing we really value. And I think we want to help our kids kind of start to, you know, see beauty as something that's like very, like appearance is way low down on the list of um, you know, what's important about who they are. That is so, so powerful. Thank you so much for bringing all of those things up. It's a lot to think through. And I'll just say to the listeners, these things take practice and you're not going to be perfect. So don't expect yourself to be perfect at some of these conversations. But I think what Una was saying of taking that deep breath and being curious, turn it into curiosity. Even when you're like really stressed out inside, be like, why do you think that? Or what does that mean to you? You know, and start really exploring what your child is thinking in their head and what may have triggered that what happened and then take it calmly step by step. I, I think that you're right. I think a lot of parents can get triggered. And then when you get flooded with all these emotions, it really is hard to think, you know, you're just like, you know, just go right back to me. It was junior high. That's when I got bullied. And it just takes you right back into that place where you felt so much shame and fear and all of these emotions. So thank you so much for, for helping us think through that and giving us some scripts so that we can be a little bit more prepared when those conversations come up. And we can always go back and get a do-over. Yes. You know, that idea of rupture and repair, I think, you know, in that moment, that flood of feeling comes and we say, oh no, honey, you're fine the way you are. We can always go back to our child the next day and say, oh, you know what, sweetie, you asked me something yesterday and I don't think I gave you a very good good answer. I wanna come back to that. Can you tell me more about what you were feeling when you said you had this question about your body? So I think it's so powerful when our kids realize that we can recognize we made a little bit of a mistake, we can do that repair and it really can be the beginning of a great conversation. Absolutely. I've done that many a times with a lot of different things, thought about it, came back later and been like, you know, I thought about this some more. I didn't maybe respond the way I wanted or the best way I thought might've been in this situation. Let's talk about it some more. So can always do that. And just like Una was saying, it helps your child see that nobody's perfect and they don't have to be perfect either. Like we're going to learn how to handle different situations in life. And, you know, we have that opportunity to go back and try a different way. So that's great. But it made me think too of another 
issue I want to talk about, which is something that I think is very common and we're just habituated to this is commenting on appearance. So this is super, super common. We do it all the time with our children, with other people. What is your advice for getting out of that habit? Because I feel like it's the first thing that we do when we see somebody is comment on their appearance, some aspect of their appearance. Do you have any specific tips for that? Yeah. And I mean, the number one is people are so likely to say, you look great. Have you lost weight? Yeah. Right. So complimenting weight loss if you can notice that that's happening and try to kind of get out of that default mode, that's really powerful. And I'm here to say, I, I complimented my child's pediatrician on weight loss in front of my kids. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that's the, def, that's our kind of default response. If someone has lost weight that we compliment and talk about it as a positive, as, a, as if it's always a positive thing. Um, do I regret that? Yes. I'm not going to beat myself up over it because I didn't know any better. I was just doing what we're culturally taught to do. I think especially women to women, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of just cultural training that we've been given. And the flip side is we often will bash our bodies when we're among uh, when women are among other women. Um, you know, men are not. Uh, you know, men have body image concerns um, as well. It's not like it's only women, but um, I think there is some something special about the way especially teen and tween girls are taught to socialize right often around kind of body comparison. But coming back to your question, you know, with the pandemic, I think my favorite response when seeing someone now is to say, I'm so happy to see you. And kind of getting into that, that habit of really focusing on the joy of reconnecting with someone you know, it's really about being with that person. It has nothing to do with what they look like. And so practicing, like you said, you can practice it, right? Um, practicing it in a mirror um, and just thinking about how that feels when you reunite with someone you haven't seen and they say like, I've missed you or I'm just so happy that we can be together. It just feels so good versus someone commenting on your body. Yes. And it really gets down to the essence of them, right? Like, you don't care what they look like or what size they are, what their hair looks like. You just love them as a person, their their whole soul, you know? I, I love reframing that that way and, and getting used to commenting on a person's essence and just wanting to be around them. That's a beautiful way to think about it. And what I've started doing because I feel like, and you know what you're talking about, women engaging in this self-bashing, that fat talk. And they've actually done studies on fat talk and how pervasive it is and how it makes everybody feel bad, but we still keep doing it. <laughs> Even though it, everybody engaging in that fat talk comes away from the conversation feeling worse about themselves. So I've gotten pretty good about if anybody comments on my body size or anything, just gently redirecting the conversation. Like, oh, did you hear about such and such? Or, oh, let's talk about this, you know? And not necessarily making comments like, please don't say that or something like that. More like just gently redirecting, not engaging in that line of talk, you know? And it does take practice and it's difficult. And I think some people, they feel like, and this is diet culture too, they feel like if somebody has lost weight, because people are generally so proud of losing weight, that if you don't say something about it, you're not showing them that you care about them. You know, it's like this very complex thing. So it's hard for them not to say something. But I think it's also good to be reminded that body size 
changes, we evolve, but sometimes body size may change in response to things that are very painful. Like, you know, people going through really painful things or they stop eating because they don't even have appetite. And so just be thinking about stuff like that too, that just because someone has lost weight doesn't mean that they're on this like wellness journey where they're purposely trying to lose weight. It could have been from something that was really harming them, like an eating disorder or a death in the family or something like that. So trying to think about other things to say to that person instead of body size. It, it, like, I, like we said before, it takes practice, but we can do it together. But speaking of eating disorders, I'd love to talk more about that. So like we talked at the beginning of this interview, they're very complex, multifactorial, but can you give us some tips that parents can use to try to reduce the risk of their child developing one? And then we'll also talk later about some of the signs and symptoms we may see early on in an eating disorder. Yeah. And I like how you phrase that as sort of like lowering the risk or, um, you know, because we can't prevent every eating disorder. They just happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are things that we can do to make it less likely to happen. Um, so, you know, definitely if there's someone in the family who's, who's dieting, um, that can put kids at greater risk for body image and their own disordered eating. Right. So I know this is really hard to hear if you're a parent who, you know, struggling with disordered eating yourself and, Maybe you've gone from keto to whole 30 to what, you know, pick into Noom, right? That's the new, <laughs> the new one that's bombarding everyone with ads. Um, you know, if you're tracking your food and your weight, you know, your kids are watching. Even if you never say anything to them about their food or body, kids are always watching and listening. So if you need support with your own body image or disordered eating or maybe even an eating disorder, that's, I mean, you deserve that for yourself, first of all, and it's also going to have the secondary benefit for your kids. And sometimes it's easier to do things for our kids than they are, than it is to do it for ourselves. So if you realize like, oh, I really hate always being on a diet, I never feel good. Um, and you're not sure how to get off that diet train, maybe doing it for your kids will be that kind of like little boost you need to, to start to take care of yourself in a different way. Um, you know, one simple thing would be if there's a bathroom scale in your home, I really encourage families to remove that. Um, if there's someone in the home who needs a scale for, you know, medical, you know, true medical reasons, um, you know, either talking about that as a family or keeping it as a private thing that's not out in the open for kids to see. I think talking about food is another big, <laughs> this is a big topic, but, you know, I think Diet culture has taught us to categorize and label foods a lot. Like you mentioned macronutrients, right? Like little kids are learning like what protein is, right? So a lot of nutrition education is just not developmentally appropriate. Um, You know, when we start to teach kids to label and categorize foods, it really can kind of go sideways pretty quickly. So I really encourage parents to talk about food just by naming it the food that it is. So, um, you know, ice cream is just ice cream. It's not a treat. Um, broccoli is just broccoli. It's not, you know, a green veggie. I mean, it is all those things, right? But when we start to categorize foods as like, this is a carb, or this is a processed food, or this is a treat, um, those kinds of terms can be really confusing to kids. And when kids start to see food kind of in, in black and white terms or into categories, they can get either fixated on a food or get afraid of a food, start to give themselves rules about food. 
And that's where, um, you know, kids can be more vulnerable to an eating disorder because eating disorders love rules about food, right? So, you know, if you're already in a family where there are a lot of rules about food, that could put you at higher risk um, for developing disordered eating or an eating disorder. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family dryami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great. And I agree. I mean, I feel like it was what I saw in my children, particularly my older son, that really showed me, even though I had been miserable for decades on the diet roller coaster off and on and developed binge eating and all of this stuff, it was never enough to you know, try to hop off until I saw that him as a six-year-old started body checking. And I was like, six-year-old boy, first of all, like, you know, my biased brain is like, oh, you know, boys, whatever, they don't care. You know, (laughs) it's just not true. It's a myth, right? (laughs) And he was six. And I was like, I am basically role modeling all these things, you know? And so that was my wake-up call to start to change the way that I approach my body and just what I said, because I was, I'm a very vocal person. So I would just say stuff about my body all the time in front of anybody. And of course, all disparaging. So that for me, it was, I want to learn these things so that I can be a good role model for my children, knowing that it's a journey and I'm not perfect. And I've still had my bumps along the way, you know, it's, Diet culture is is really difficult. But the scale, I think, is a big one because for sure, you don't realize what that can trigger. If there's a scale, that means that there's something important about how much we weigh, you know, whether it's up or down or whatever. And so that can create some obsession. And the food categorization, that's very tricky as well. And I found too that there's there's certain personality types that I think really gravitate towards starting to categorize and make rules about anything in life. And some pe- some kids are just probably very low risk of ever developing some of these things because they just don't think that way. And some kids, by the way that they see things, they're more likely to latch on. So we have to be cautious how we talk about food and demonizing, making foods good or bad, black and white. I think those are really great tips. Speaking of eating disorder myths, though, recently you had a really good post about common myths about eating disorders, and I thought it was just really great because we think about eating disorders a certain way, have a certain look, have a certain feel to them, but things aren't always that way. So can you talk a little bit about some of these myths that you were discussing on social media? So glad you asked. As you said, you know, you thought, hey, I have a son. I don't need to worry about body image, right? And now you know, wait a minute, boys have body image concerns too, and boys do get eating disorders. So that's the number one myth, I think, is that people, I think people hear the words eating disorder. And they picture a thin white teenage girl, right? And she's probably from an affluent family. She's probably a straight A student, right? There's this very pervasive um, myth about who gets eating disorders and what they look like. And I am here to say anybody can develop an eating disorder. 
regardless of your gender, race, um, your, you know, your social, socioeconomic class, um, your body size, right? So eating disorders affect everyone. So that's the, the biggest myth out there, I think, is that you can kind of tell if someone has an eating disorder by how they look. Um, just not true. Another really pervasive myth is this pop psychology idea that it's so-called not about the food, right? That eating disorders are always about some deeper issue. And I want to, this might take a second to kind of unpack, but certainly someone with an eating disorder can have, can have a trauma history, can have pre-existing mental health concerns, can have a lot of other challenges that they're dealing with. Um, and there can be people who develop an eating disorder, you know, after having a bad stomach flu and lose five pounds, or a child goes to a, you know, a summer program where they don't love the cafeteria food and they lose five or 10 pounds. And now they've got an eating disorder. There was no trauma history there, nothing. They weren't abused. They weren't um, suffering from anxiety or depression. And so I think it's really important for, for parents to know that, um, you know, eating disorders are very complex. There is a strong genetic component. Um, and that the most important thing when a child has an eating disorder, anyone has an eating disorder is getting their nutrition, like nutritional rehabilitation needs to be number one, you know, eating enough, eating regularly, eating enough variety of, of foods to support health that that has to be the number one thing. And when people hear the message, it's not about the food, or you have to go figure out your deeper issues first. What that means is that people can spend years, if not decades in therapy, searching for, you know, the so-called root cause or trying to resolve things from their past, thinking that that will unlock the secret to, to their eating disorder. And, and that, can be true for some people that there they you know, there is some kind of light bulb moment they have that really helps them, but for the vast majority of people, we really need to start with the nutrition piece first. And as they are nutritionally rehabilitated, if they have to restore weight, they've restored weight to the right weight for their body, not just some arbitrary BMI <laughs> percentile, but for their body. Um, and then that can be a time to talk about well. Let's let's look at your your mental health as a whole, right? How, you know, let's let's look at things that maybe contributed to um, these eating disorder thoughts, or you know, that's the time to really kind of dig into maybe some of the other issues that may or may not even be be present. I hope I answered that particular myth or explained that myth a little bit. A related one is that that people with eating disorders develop eating disorders because they're anxious and obsessed with food in their body, right? So that's the myth, right? Oh, this person is very weird with food. They're, you know, very picky about their, um, their food. They're very obsessed with their body. That's why they developed an eating disorder. And what we know now from research is that getting into energy deficit, right? So not enough calories coming in, not eating enough, that state of malnutrition or semi-starvation that kicks off anxiety, depression, OCD type symptoms, obsession with food and obsession with body. So what we think of as the causes of an eating disorder are more often the symptoms of starvation. So I think that that kind of ties into the it's not about the food piece as well. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. There's one more, I think, the other common myth is it's all about control. The eating, this is, I mean, I even hear eating disorder experts say this a lot. Um, I really push back on that. When people say it's all about control, what they're missing is that when someone has an eating disorder, they have lost control. Their eating disorder is controlling them, um, not the other way around. And so I really, I think it's important for everyone to have a lot of compassion for people with eating disorders. They didn't ask for this. It's not a choice or a lifestyle or a cry for attention or a phase. Um, This is a serious illness that someone developed for who knows what reason. We don't always find out why. Um, And the most important thing is that they need that nutritional rehabilitation and the support to, to start to recover. Oh, I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing those myths with us. And I agree so much from someone that I was never formally diagnosed with an eating disorder, but probably qualified for one and having disordered eating. But also I think that applies to mental illness in general, because I've also had suicidal ideation, been severely depressed in the past. And you get to this point where you, you don't feel like the same person anymore and everything is believable to you. And somebody from the outside would think, I mean, that's irrational. Why, why are you even thinking that you're just doing that? Cause you want attention or whatever, but no, you're like, literally that's how you think. That's what you believe. You're trapped in that world that can happen with an eating disorder as well. So I agree that taking this compassionate route, a route of empathy and love, and then taking this child and helping them through this journey so that they can come out on the other end feeling better about themselves, not entrapped by this eating disorder. Because if we say, you know, you're just doing this because you're trying to control everybody and all this stuff, I mean, that's, I don't think that's helpful. But I agree with you also, as far as this happens a lot in pediatrics with lots of different kinds of things. When we spend a lot of time trying to find the root cause, then we're not spending as much energy doing the things right now that we can do to help, you know, like, Maybe we might be able to find the root cause, maybe not. Either way, we know that we can help ameliorate the situation with these things. And so I think our energy is better spent in that area as well. So those are all really, really great. 
So let's talk about some early eating disorder signs that parents may miss, because I know that you talk about this um, a lot, and especially that myth that it has a certain look. And I know we don't love the BMI or categorization of weight, but I read a stat that of all the eating disorders, only 6% of people technically fall into that underweight category, which I am putting in air quotes because, you know, it's a categorization, but most people aren't going to look like this malnourished person, you know? So if people are just waiting till their child looks like that, they're going to miss a lot. So what are some early signs that parents may want to just be aware of and making sure that they're kind of thinking of that their child may display? Great question. I think any change in your child's relationship with food should be a red flag, even if it seems like a positive change. And this is where those food categories make it so confusing for parents. But I can't tell you how many families I know, and I'm, my family is one of these families, where the child just, you know, declared they wanted to eat healthier. Mm -hmm. And this was the beginning of their eating disorder. Um, and, you know, most families, their teenager, their preteen comes home and says, can I go to the grocery store with you? I want to, I want to eat healthier. Like, most families would say, that sounds great. Wow, they're really teaching you good stuff in school, right? And so we would run out and go, oh, you want, you know, these new foods and oh, you don't, you're skipping dessert now. Oh, you have so much willpower, right? We, we end up reinforcing beliefs that the eating disorder believes, right? Um, so anytime your child changes their food, um, the other piece to watch out for is your child just having a lot more anxiety about food. So maybe they want to read the food labels. Again, this can be tricky because they're taught this in schools. That's like, a, we could do a whole nother podcast on schools and, and diet culture. Um, but you know, if your child starts reading food labels, and of course, if your child has celiac or a food allergy, they have to read food labels for their health and safety. So I'm not counting that, that kind of situation. But if suddenly your child changes their relationship to food, or their relationship to movement, you know, your child, this was really tricky during the pandemic when kids lost their access to sports and um, things like that. I know we're still in the pandemic, but most things have, a lot of things for kids have come back to quasi-normal, um, knock on wood. <laughs> um, but, you know, your child who, you know, used to play their sport and love their sport, but now they have to run a certain number of minutes or miles a day, um, or they never take rest days, it feels kind of compulsive, that's a huge red flag. Um, your child not wanting to eat dinner with you or eat meals with you, that's another big red flag. And parents miss this because we think, oh, my teenager, it's normal. They're moody. They want to avoid their parents. I feel so passionately about family meals. And, you know, if your child suddenly says, I'm going to eat in my bedroom, to me, that's that's the beginning of a conversation and maybe setting some boundaries around that and maybe using that calm, curious, compassionate Kind of approach of like, tell me what's, why do you want to eat in your room? Um, so those are some of the big red flags. Weight loss obviously should be a red flag. I think most parents would know that. Um, but also lack of weight gain, right? So if you realize, gosh, you know, my kid's wearing their same Easter dress from two years ago um, and it fits about the same, that doesn't seem right, you know, to me. Like, hmm. So if you notice your kids aren't growing out of their clothes as you might expect they would, that's something to look at as well, because as you know, as a pediatrician, you know, your child should be roughly staying on their growth curve and not gaining weight is in a child is like the equivalent of an adult losing weight, right? They're missing out on growth and development when they aren't um, getting enough energy in. 
So that's another piece to look out for. Excellent, excellent things to look out for. And I feel like because I've been doing this for several years, <laughs> and I realize some of this, I, I've just been able to navigate it, but the school is tough. And my older son, he's a junior and had a health class. And I was appalled that they were, they had them track their macronutrients. So we had to have a talk. I, I didn't like yell at the teacher or anything, but I feel like having that background and experience talking to my son about it. And he was like, Oh, don't worry, mom, I'm not going to get obsessed with this. And I'm like, okay, well, if you start feeling those kinds of things, talk to me. But I think also when they get into certain sports, like my son loves weightlifting and he does weightlifting at school four days a week, which is great. They have a program there and he's really liking it, but certain sports, they can start to kind of get infiltrated in that way of thinking of like, you know, for a boy, sometimes it's the opposite, right? So gaining weight, putting on muscle, you know, eating a certain way, having to eat certain things. So you have to watch out for some of these ways of thinking and some of the little comments that your child made. I'm thinking about, you know, cutting this out or adding this or doing this and, you know, having that compassionate conversation, exploring what they're looking for, but also trying to keep balance. Like I'm always talking about balance around here. Like there's room in our diet for all the foods, everything we want. There's nothing has to be cut out. So it, it does take, especially with teens, that constant conversation around these things because their friends are going to be talking about it. They're going to be taught it in school and sports. Everything brings up all of these different thoughts that they have about how they should be thinking about their food and their, their bodies. Do you have any other thoughts about sports in particular for boys or girls? Yeah, it's such a good point because coaches can often say thing like a very small kind of offhand comment a child can take, you know, they, they want to please their coach, right? So if they hear something about carbs or protein or, oh, if I'm lighter, I'll be faster. Or they hear these messages, um, you know, again, a black and white thinker can really go down a pretty dangerous rabbit hole. So I think it's often worth, like you said, having a conversation with your child, depending on how, you know, how comfortable you are. I think having a conversation with a coach, you know, like, do you talk to the kids about nutrition? If so, what do you share? And just kind of get get a read on what the coach's approach is. Um, I also think it's important for parents to know it's not just wrestling, figure skating and ballet and ice, you know, that kind of thing that can put kids at risk for, for eating disorders and body image concerns. It really is, can be any sport. Athletes do have a higher rate of eating disorders. And it's often, you know, we see a lot in the like high energy output sports like soccer, cross country, swimming. Um, so sports where you might not, you might not associate it with eating disorders the way you might with like wrestling or, or something like that, or, or gymnastics. Um, but really it can be, it can really be in any sport. Um, but we do see those high energy output sports, right? That's where a kid can get into energy deficit really easily. Um, you know, they come home from a long run at practice and they're so tired and they, they they're almost too high tired to eat. Um, and really quickly a kid can lose a few pounds and then there they go, right? And there's the eating disorder kind of mindset or that operating system takes over and now your kid's really struggling. Yeah, especially when diet culture comes in and all their friends start complimenting their weight loss. It's like one thing leads to another, right? It's just like, wow, you just get put right down the chute <laughs> to disordered eating. Whew, it's a tough one. All right, so 
I really am curious about this next question. I really want to hear your thoughts on this. So tell me about how diet and wellness culture can co-opt and corrupt veganism and vegetarianism. And I've done a whole podcast episode about this because I know as a physician too, I want to look out for this and make sure that my patients and their families are adopting some of these ways of eating for reasons that are health promoting and not necessarily an excuse for an eating disorder. But it's controversial and I know it's very controversial, especially amongst the intuitive eating community and things like that. So I wanna hear your thoughts, especially since you help coach families through this. Yeah, I mean, with anything related to feeding a family, I think it's, you know, it's your mileage may vary. It's not one size fits all, Mm -hmm. right? So. Um, that's just like my general rule of thumb when it comes to, to feeding a, feeding a family. I think our culture, you know, has really associated any kind of food rules, right? Diet culture, like loves to latch onto that. So vegetarian and vegetarianism and veganism, you know, that can get quickly kind of co-opted, like you said, by these diet culture rules, because people associate it with, um, with thinness um, with affluence, um, you know, you have the time to prepare these kinds of foods. You can access some of these foods are more expensive. Um, and, you know, people think it's in general, you know, lower calorie, right? doesn't have to be, but there is that kind of diet mentality. I think the biggest piece for me, and when it comes to families who are, if a family has you know, raised a child, as, they're all vegetarians, like that's the way they eat then a child being vegetarian is not a red flag, right? And so going back to your early question, like what are the red flags? I think if you're a family that are, you're flexitarian or you're omnivores and a child suddenly declares, I want to be vegetarian, again, we want to approach with curiosity and compassion and just kind of get at what where that's coming from. And certainly it does not mean your child has an eating disorder or that they will definitely have an eating disorder. It's just worth paying attention to. Um, Veganism, I think, for kids can be a lot trickier. So veganism, just because of the nature of it being more restrictive for a child who's going about their day at school with friends, maybe going you know, to a birthday party, if we want them to be able to participate and eat in social, you know, in social ways, which is part of our eating, um, veganism can make it really hard. Um, and to get the variety and the amount of energy that a growing kid needs, like it would be a lot, it's a lot of effort for a kid to have to figure out what they're going to eat all the time, right? So that's where becoming vegan can, um, again, get a kid into energy deficit, you know, just by accident. They may not even be trying to lose weight. Um, they just want to be, you know, healthier, right? And maybe in quotation marks, right? Because Obviously, if someone's going to develop an eating disorder, that's very unhealthy for them. Um, but that's, I think that's something for parents to really, really watch out for. And again, it can start out as, you know, I mean, this happened to my own child, right? Where suddenly wanted to be vegan. I have vegans in my family. It's not like a unusual concept. You know, I wasn't judgmental about it. I was like, okay, great. Just like so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, we really tried to accommodate that. And really quickly got my kid into energy deficit and then more food started falling off. So now it was gluten was also off the table. Um, and then other, you know, anything sweet was off the table. So, um, keeping an eye out for the way that 
a child might really be excited about a concept like veganism or vegetarianism for environmental reasons, for animal welfare reasons. And we still want to make sure, you know, I always, I told my child, you know, you're an animal too, and you have to take care of your animal. And right now, you know, you need, you need a variety of foods to, to get well. So breaking that rigidity around eating was really important for my child's recovery. That doesn't mean they can't someday decide to be vegetarian or vegan down the road. Um, but for them, it meant that that wasn't a safe way for them to eat during that health crisis. Um, so I know it took us in a little bit different direction, but I think it's important for parents to know any, any big change in your child's diet is something to pay attention to, even if it sounds like a good change. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. No, you put that so beautifully. And I agree. Like I, I'm definitely not one of these people. And I wrote this in my book too, that when it comes to our kids, once they're a certain age, they're exposed to all these foods. They're exposed to parties. They're exposed to social events and all of these things. So each family has to determine for themselves how they're going to navigate. Now I work with families that are already vegan or already plant-based and usually raising little kids that way. So it's a different scenario still though, if they're in that situation where their family's vegan, but there's a lot of rules about what they can or cannot eat outside of the home, it can still trigger a lot of issues. And so that's something that families have to kind of figure out for themselves. What's going to work best for them? What's going to help that child grow up with a healthy relationship with food and not be one of those 
sneak eaters or, you know, because once they start sneaking things and hiding things, we know that there's an issue there, right? There's a relationship issue with food. But I agree that if you're a, a family, you're not vegan, you're not plant-based, you're eating the standard American diet, the omnivore way, and you have a child who wants to be vegan and you don't know anything about it, exploring, being curious why they want to do that. And if you feel that, you know, it's it's not an eating disorder, making sure that you are aligning yourself with a dietitian or a healthcare professional that can help you do it in a safe manner. Because if a family is not familiar with it, it, it can, it's easy. Like, well, what am I going to eat? Okay. I'm going to have these fries and you know, the salad or whatever. Like it's just the variety of foods may be very low just because nobody's familiar with it. The child themselves isn't familiar with it. They just know what they don't want to eat. And it can, it can lead to a, a situation that may not be as health promoting, but as a pediatrician and as a mother, I agree that the most important thing for me is for children First and foremost, to be healthy and to have a healthy relationship with food in their bodies. That is what means the most for their lives, their joy, their happiness, you know, all of those things. And once we get that in place, then, you know, whatever steps happen later may happen. But that's very, very important. So thank you for sharing a part of your story with us. I know that that can be kind of challenging. So I'd like to hear, I think you talked a little bit more about this, but I guess we talked about weight bias and fat phobia and how we can be immersed in that. We can be kind of brainwashed by that way of thinking and it can really trap us in different ways to feed our kids and approach our child's weight and body size. Do you feel that it's possible or have you seen when you encounter this in parents that they're able to unlearn some of these ways of thinking or do you feel like it's pretty challenging? It's both. It is very challenging and it's possible to unlearn what we've been taught and to kind of expand our idea of, you know, what are, what, what's really important for our kids. Um, it is really hard. I mean, I will tell you, you know, when we were refeeding my child back to health, I joke that I used to cook like Dean Ornish and not, then I cooked like Paula Dean. Right, where I, you know, I love it. That's the cutest <laughs> quote ever. Yeah. So, I mean, some of your listeners are going to have to Google who are these people. Um, uh, they at but, least know, you know who Dean really, Ornish is. So, <laughs> yeah, your listeners for sure will know Dean Ornish. And, you know, I think, you know, we had to, you know, to, to, get my kid back to health, you know, they needed, you know, basically the opposite of what diet culture would tell you to feed yes. someone. Um, and I felt it was really important that we had to eat, you know, as a family, you know, it wasn't like you're getting this special meal and the rest of us are going to keep eating, you know, kind of what your eating disorder would have wanted you to eat. Um, so we really changed the way we eat in our house and it forced me to kind of eat foods I hadn't had in a long time. Right. I mean, I shouldn't say it forced me. I chose to do this for my child. Um, and, you know, it meant gaining weight along with my child. This is very common in eating disorder recovery for parents to gain weight with their kids. And I'm here to say, that even though I knew I was helping save my child's life, it was still hard, right? To have like, you know, not be able to fit into my clothes or, you know, to let go of some of those old rules that I didn't even realize were rules. They'd become my default of how I ate or how I exercised. And 
it was still hard, even though my child's, literally my child's life depended on it. And I don't regret it for a second. I think, I mean, I, I certainly would not wish an eating disorder on anyone. And I can say that we have grown so much as a family and it really, it, it was my like teacher about how much kind of diet culture and weight bias and healthism and all of that, that I had in my own head and didn't even realize like that wasn't really me. I'd been taught that. So it is really hard to let go. You don't have to have a child on death's door to unlearn this. I'm, so that's the other piece, right? You can start to un, unlearn some of these beliefs. And I think, you know, I can't remember who said this, and I feel terrible that I can't attribute the quotation, but I heard somewhere, you can't see bodies differently until you see different bodies. Do you know who said that? No, I don't. But I that's great. <laughs> if I can find it, right? So you can't see bodies differently until you see different bodies. And I think, you know, our when we, our mainstream media, right, looks like about 1% of the population, right, body size wise. <laughs> um, and so we get kind of a distorted, especially during the pandemic, when we were just like Netflix was like our friend group, right, where we weren't seeing real body, you know, our wide, I shouldn't say real bodies, those are real people, but we weren't seeing the natural diversity of bodies. I think looking at, looking at the shows you watch, looking at your social media feeds, starting to see different bodies and kind of realizing the natural, beautiful human diversity that is out there um, by kind of, you know, instead of detoxing your, your diet, I would say detox your Instagram, right? And look at, you know, are these accounts kind of feeding that, that weight bias? Or can you start to challenge it and learn about, about weight bias and maybe start to follow different, different people? I love that. Ooh, yeah, that what you shared about the refeeding process and how you had to go through your own process through that. I mean, that gave me chills and made me tear up a little bit because you had to do a, a little mini recovery on your own mm -hmm. while your child's doing that recovery that you didn't even know you had to do, right? And one thing I'm curious about, since you, are, <laughs> you went from the Dean Ornish to the Paula Dean, I, I'm curious about pleasure. And the experience of pleasure around the dinner table as you change the diet and was your child able to experience and express that or was it something that was difficult during the, the refeeding process? You know, during the early stages of eating disorder recovery, I don't think anyone's enjoying their food, right? I want to normalize that for any families out there that are doing, especially if they're doing family-based treatment, which is the the treatment that ultimately helped my child recover. They also went through all the higher levels of care and really weren't, they weren't getting better. Um, but doing family-based treatment where families are really the ones doing the hard work of refeeding a child, you know, mealtimes can be pretty unpleasant for a while. I will say once we got through that really rough patch, food did become pleasurable again for the whole family. And cooking for, for pleasure and satisfaction and joy that's my default now. So I used to be cooking for how can I, you know, make it lower calorie or how can I, you know, how can I sneak in more veggies or things like that. And I just have a completely different approach to cooking for my family. And I focus on variety, satisfaction, and pleasure. And mealtimes are so much more joyful, more relaxing. Um, we eat a wide variety of foods and it really, I mean, as you said, it, this horrible thing that happened in our family, you know, we came out the other side with just so much more joy and gratitude and 
yeah, meals are really a lot more fun than they ever were even before the eating disorder. Yeah. I love that. And as you were going through your own process of, you know, tuning into some of the feelings that you were having, was there anything that helped you as you were navigating your body changing with this process of refeeding? Definitely getting yourself clothes that fit your body comfortably, right? That's huge, right? And I mean, it can't, it seems like such a simple thing and it really makes a huge difference. Um, and getting rid of, or at least putting away the clothes that don't fit you. Um, Because I think that can be really triggering to see those clothes. It also really helps to have a friend, right? Or some sense of community, someone who's in this journey with you. So I have a dear friend who we used to do Weight Watchers together. So this tells you how far we came. So we used to do Weight Watchers together. And she was really my closest supporter and, and friend, like boots on the ground with me during my child's eating disorder, helped me with so many things. And she came right along this journey of intuitive eating and body acceptance. And, um, you know, now we share articles with each other all the time. And it's like, we, we've kind of come full circle, or maybe that's not full circle. Maybe that's 180, right? We used to be like diet buddies, and now we're intuitive eating body celebration buddies. Um, and that really, really helped. That's great. Oh, that's such great tips. But I think it's, it is very important, just like you were saying, to pause and acknowledge the different thoughts that you're having and realize where you were having rules that you didn't even know you had. So, and, and as you're going through this journey, even like if you don't have a child that has an eating disorder, but you want to try to do whatever you can to decrease the risk, tuning into how you make choices and how you develop the menu at the house or choose what to eat on a day-to-day basis, sometimes you realize that there's rules in there you didn't even know you had because there's so many layers and it's been ingrained for so long. It's just such a habit. So thank you so much for bringing that up. But what do you wish more people knew? I'm going to focus on parents. I wish parents knew that how their kids eat is so much more important than what their kids eat. So of course, we care about nutrition and, and all the things. Um, we want them to have variety. But when we focus on the, the what too much, we kind of interrupt the how. And that's where that anxiety or pressure or fear or bribing or negotiating comes in. And mealtime's like, wait, isn't this supposed to be fun? Um, and so really just reminding yourself that how you eat as a family is so much more important than what you're eating. Love it. Beautifully said. Well, I'd like to talk about you for a second because I do talk a lot about habits and behaviors on this podcast. So I'd love to know what personal habit you're most proud of and why. You know, in terms of a habit, I love to go for a walk almost every day outside. Um, And believe it or not, I live in Los Angeles and I do walk. Um, And so (laughs) I think for me, I just, I think better. I sleep better. I feel better. I love seeing, you know, the people in my neighborhood walking their dogs. And that's the habit that really kind of, especially during, during these last two years that really, I think kept me in one piece. (laughs) And you live in an area where you can walk outside comfortably 
most of the year, right? So that's a blessing. That's nice to have. Well, Una, this has been wonderful. I I just love your approach. I love your energy and you're so calm and compassionate. I just feel so comfortable with you. And I really want you to tell us where my listeners can connect with you, especially if there's parents out there that feel like, oh, I just really want to work with her. Where can they find you and what products and services do you offer? Yeah, well, my website's a great place to start. It's unahanson.com. Uh, I always say when in doubt, it's an O <laughs> when you're uh, when you're typing <laughs> that in, unahanson.com. And I'm, you know, I post almost every day something for parents on Instagram. And there I'm at una underscore Hanson. There's already an Una Hanson who's a baby who has an Instagram. So <laughs> Um, oh, nice. and, yeah, yeah. So if you go to, if you go to Uta Hansen on Instagram and you see a baby, that's not me. Um, keep looking and, um, I, yeah. And then on Facebook, I run a group called parenting without diet culture. And that's where I post a lot of articles, podcasts, other resources for, for parents. So that's a great place. If you want to start kind of building your, you know, your knowledge base around some of these topics. Um, and the way I work with families, um, I do private consultations by, by phone and Zoom. Um, and some families, it's just a, a one-time session. They need a little bit of a direction. They're not sure if their child is struggling with something and I can you know, get them the right resources. Um, and some families really want to start to unpack and unlearn some of these beliefs. So we set up a recurring session to kind of check in. And um, yeah, it's really whatever families need, I can kind of accommodate um, for what they need. And then I also work at an eating disorder treatment program called Equip, where for families whose kids, they're, you know, they already have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, or they're pretty, pretty worried that it's an eating disorder. Um, that's at equip.health. And um, that's, I just can't recommend this program enough, especially knowing what kind of what eating disorder programs can look like. This is a really great one that supports families. And my role there is I'm, I'm the fa- a family mentor. So families get a five-person care team, um, and you know, a medical provider, a dietitian, a therapist. The child gets a peer mentor, and the families get a family mentor. So they get this great wraparound wow. team that supports them in this process. Um, wish I had had that when my kid was going through this. That's wonderful. And to work with the equip program, is that something that they have to be local to that area or who does that serve? Yeah, we're all, it's all virtual and we're in, we can serve almost every state. By fact, by the time this podcast comes out, we might be in every single state. Um, but if you're not sure if your state is, um, you know, covered, um, you can just put in an inquiry and, and get that, um, get that answered right away. Oh, that's awesome. We'll definitely put links in the show notes to all of these programs. And it's great to have the information on these resources. So thank you so much. Well, I would love one more answer from you. And this is your number one tip for busy moms. What is one thing that they can start doing today to support confidence in their children in regard to their body and their food choices? For busy moms, it's self-compassion. Just giving yourself that self-compassion about you're doing better than you think. You are an amazing mom. <laughs> Giving yourself that grace and compassion, you know, taking one, one more like that we get so much judgment and pressure as moms. And I think just giving yourself like sometimes even literally a pat on the back um, and just having that self-compassion, being kind to yourself, right, is a great model for your kids to, to be kind to themselves. 
Thank you so much, Una. This has been fantastic. I appreciate what you do. I am so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a very plantastic day. Thanks, you too. Oh my goodness, there was so much awesomeness in this episode. I don't even know where to begin, but I'll just say how I feel. I feel the compassion and the empathy that Una has for parents, especially parents that are going through the experience of a child with an eating disorder. And I just love her passion, the passion that she has for helping parents navigate this wild situation that we're in with diet culture and body image and how we talk about food and eating and and it's complicated and it just really has us you know just immersed in this world so I know that she's working really hard and doing a lot of work to help navigate this with parents so I really appreciate that but I guess one of my biggest takeaways is for parents to have compassion for themselves but also just be very aware be very aware of the little things that your children can say that may signal that they're at risk for an eating disorder or that they're starting to tiptoe their way that direction. The way that you talk about food, the way that you approach food in your family, the way that you are approaching your own body, history of eating, history of dieting, or even current dieting. So these are all things to explore, to reflect upon, to think about, give yourself grace, be compassionate with yourself, just like Una said, it is worth thinking about. It is worth deciding, is this the way that you want to keep going forward with how you approach things? So lots of gems, lots of pearls in this episode. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you need help in this area, if you're struggling with your situation with a child who is having disordered eating or an eating disorder, or you just want to figure out whether that's something that might be happening, reach out to Una. As you can see, she's so compassionate and so calm. And I think she's just going to be a great resource. So I am so glad that I'm going to have her expertise in my resource toolbox. It's so amazing. Well, veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here today and for listening to this episode. I hope you loved it. I'll catch you again next week. Have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. 
everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. 